Well, all right. We are going to cover the book of Ruth. I can't help but notice tonight that uh, there are more girls in the house than normal. <laughs> you title something Romantic Redemption and uh, build it and they will come, right? Uh, let's pray. Let's pray. I have been, uh, yes ma'am, Susie, you are going to pray. I have been studying all day, if I'm looking at you funny, going a little blind. Wearing my glasses all day means that when I take them off, y'all look funny now. Uh, I mean, the guys are slightly more attractive than normal, and the girls are fuzzy, you know? <laughs> Susie, pray for us, sweetheart. Thank you so much for your blessing and for your We're going to do what we always do, which is Jennifer will read the first chapter, then we'll go from there. There's lots of audio-visual tonight, and uh, I want to confess that this is one of my favorite books. I love it because of the layers of meaning that are in it. that makes it intimidating to cover in only four weeks for me, because I would like to take four weeks. Jim showed up, uh, I don't know, maybe five hours in the study, and he said, how are you doing? And I was on verse three. So um, having said that, we'll try to move at a pace that is a chapter per week, which means we'll finish this book this year, and there'll be something left for you to chew on in your personal time. Amen? Amen. You ready, Jennifer? Yes. Let's go. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahalon and Chilion. There were Ephraites from Bethlehem, Judah, and went to and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orphrah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Mahalon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughter daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughter-in-laws, she left the place where they, she had been living and set out on the road they would take back them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you, as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud. And she said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have 
Any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughter. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to two sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this, they wept again. Then Orpha kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me. But it ever so severely, anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women explained, explained can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Wow. <laughs> the last thing that was said there is where we're going to stop tonight and not start tonight. <laughs> Much as I'd like to start there tonight. It's kind of next week. They arrive in Bethlehem as the barley harvest is beginning. That means almost nothing to a modern audience. But it meant a great deal to an ancient agricultural audience. We'll try to finish up there. Let's start in the beginning of the book of Ruth. And uh, suffice it to say we're renewing our... Our prayer, Lord, open my eyes Amen. to the wonderful things that are in your law. Amen. And uh, I'll do my best to do it justice, and we'll see what happens. If something's not clear to you, ask a question, and we'll go from there. Much of the uh, more complicated subject matter is coming in the weeks to come. So, And you're going to have homework when you leave here tonight. Uh, personal homework. Nobody will have to turn it in. You don't have to avoid the next class for fear. Uh, we're calling this Romantic Redemption. This is chapter one, which I titled Clinging Resolve. We're going to need to cover a couple of things about the historical setting of the book of Ruth so that its most profound elements are not obscured from us as we move forward. There's so much that is not written uh, explicitly in the text that is a part of the text here. Maybe the first thing that you would have noticed is, you know, many letters in the New Testament start with the words, you know, the Apostle Paul. Many of the prophets in the Older Testament, the Nevi'im, say uh, the prophet's name and who he's the son of and what king he was prophesying. Here, did you notice that there is no author for the book of Ruth? That led me on quite a study today. The book of Ruth doesn't claim an author within its book, but because of the genealogy in the fourth chapter that we didn't read tonight, where we have a mention of David, we know that whoever wrote it has to at least be a contemporary of David or later. 
For instance, you could not have lived in Moses' day and wrote David's name unless it was divine revelation, which did happen. I mean, Isaiah did that 243 years before Cyrus was born, but that's probably not the case here. Secondly, since the book takes place, as it says, during the time period of the Judges, the book must come after the lifetime of Joshua, right? So the Talmud has a passage in it that I wanted to show you. Uh, and I actually found this misquoted everywhere. Uh, uh, most of the commentaries just say Drew, Jewish tradition because when they quote the source, they get it wrong. So uh, I put it on the screen for you uh, here tonight, and we'll read just a little bit of it. This is uh, the Talmud translated by William Davidson. You can find it on safaria.com. Uh, and there's a discussion going on in this passage as to the role of suffering, which is quite interesting given our subject matter tonight and where we are as a church. And when they get to the subject of the book of Ruth, the two rabbis are arguing and they get off on some fairly esoteric teaching that we won't go into tonight, but it's kind of a form of Paleo-Hebrew when, when you get into it. They're talking about why suffering is mentioned in the book of Ruth. And they say it's because the book of Ruth has a future. That it's not just in the ketuvim, which is how you walk something out faithfully, but it straddles the line with the prophets because it's telling you why you're walking faithfully, about a future hope. They even go into a resh, vav, tav scenario where we talk about the first or primary attachment is to the sign that your life is leaving. But like I said, we're not going to do that. Uh, as you move through this passage, which is Bava Batra 14b, uh, beginning in about the 12th verse, you can, I don't know whether y'all can see that, I have to get close to it. Uh, the Baratia now considers the authors of the biblical books. And who wrote the books of the Bible? Moses wrote his own book, i.e. the Torah, and the portion of Balaam in the Torah. So they're saying Moses wrote down Balaam's words. And the book of Job. So they quote Moses with the book of Job. They credit him. Joshua wrote his own book and eight verses of the Torah. Interestingly enough, we've just come from that, and uh, y'all may remember that, which described the death of Moses. Samuel wrote his own book, the book of Judges, and the book of Ruth. David wrote the book of Psalms by means of ten elders of previous generations, assembling and collecting of the included compositions of others along with his own. He included psalms authored by Adam, the first man, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and by Abraham, Moses, and Heman, Jedthuna, and I assume that says Asaph, but I can't see it. Uh, whether or not that's authoritative, we, we leave that up to you to decide. But the Jewish tradition suggests that Samuel is the author, and that alone tells us something. You can turn that off. Knowing that Samuel is the author means that while it's in the Ketuvim, it's in the writings, Samuel would be described by most people as a prophet, huh? Yes. This puts it in an interesting category, kind of like Daniel, where its primary function is to show you how to walk a faithful life under horrendous circumstances, but because of the man who wrote it, it's incredibly insightful in its prophetic uh, insight. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Um, similar to if Albert Einstein wrote a biblical commentary 
what you would be reading is this commentary on the Bible, but don't think that it wouldn't be laced with mathematics because that's how he sees the world. Well, if a prophet writes uh, a book in the Ketuvim designed to show you how to live a faithful life in a historical setting, he can't help but weave the insights that God's given him throughout the divine writ. In my mind, there's no reason to dispute Samuel since he obviously comes after Joshua and overlaps the lifespan of David. Furthermore, he's a pretty ideal candidate because of the extraordinary material that is in this book. Secondly, when we're examining the very first verse, it tells us it was written during the time period of the time of the judges and there's a second (coughs) criteria given. Read, Read me the first verse. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Okay, so how we have two markers now, right? Mm-hmm. We know that there's a time period of judges, and we know that there's a famine. Well, I, I'd never been what people would call a smart man, so I opened to the book of Judges. I started in verse 1, and by the 6th chapter I found something. Let me take you through that journey. Can I hand out some passages? Yeah, of okay, JJ, you take Judges... Three, you're going to read seven through nine. David, you take Judges three thirteen through fifteen. Brenton, take Judges three thirty one. Uh, Young Sutherland, take Judges four one through four. And uh, Daniel, you take Judges six one through six. And then we'll stop and talk about that a little bit. Judges 3, 7 through 9. Now, this progression of scriptures that you're about to hear, uh, we'll stop after each one. I'll explain what the deductive reasoning was that was going on and where I think the Lord enlightened me. Uh, I later found that McClintock and Strong's makes a similar claim as we're about to make, as did a man named Usher, who was writing hundreds of years ago. (laughs) Having said that... Yeah, who no. <laughs> was known for his dance moves. Uh, having said that, I think I probably own more commentaries than anybody in the room, and I didn't find it anywhere else. Uh, it's very encouraging, and it's the proper use of a commentary for you to get a revelation, come to a conclusion, and then check it against previous scholarship. Amen. It is not such a good practice to avoid the first step and just arrive at the second. Mm-hmm. You end up defending an argument that you've accepted without ever having uh, asked God whether it was true. What a good word. Uh, Amen. Okay, JJ, I'm sorry. Judges 3, 7 through 9. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of the Kushan Rishathaim. King of Aram and Haran, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. Okay, here we find the first judge of Israel, Othniel. Uh, it's also going to be the second grandson uh, coming from Judah's land. Oh, yeah. uh, Judah, my son, not Judah the patriarch. Uh, when you read about Othniel, and you, and you look at the events that are described, he liberates uh, Israel from military oppression. There's no mention of a famine. There's no mention of anything like a famine. So I made notes about Othniel's life, and I'm like, is this it? And I'm looking for clues. Hmm. Couldn't find it. 
So I move to the next judge. Do you see what we're doing here? Yeah. Okay. Uh, here Othniel is the first judge of Israel, but no famines mentioned. Let's take Judges 3, 13 through 15. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. You can't help but love the story of Eglon. you got a fat guy stuck in a bathroom, and he's there so long that his attendants get embarrassed. So they finally go check on him, and they find out that a, a foot and a half sword has been stuck into his gut. But it's not immediately obvious because the fat closed over it. And what's not to love about that story? That's awesome. So as I was reading about the second judge of Israel, I'm looking everywhere. Is there anything that might indicate something like a famine? Because we know the book of Ruth took place during the time period of the judges. And again, with the second judge of Israel, I found no such thing. We have a, a story about a man who took over Jericho and a left-handed assassin, assassin who, uh, who puts an end to him. On the potty. It's great. Well, yeah. story. So while that's excellence, probably doesn't pertain to Ruth. No. Okay, let's take our next one. After him came Shamgar, the son of Anah, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goat, and he also saved Israel. This is the entire historical narrative about Shamgar. And other than being an excellent name for a male descendant, I found nothing of use here regarding the book of Ruth. I'm just working through the judges. I'm taking you down this track because I think you'll arrive at the same conclusion that I did. Okay, let's take Judges 4, 1 through 4. After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, a king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth, Hagoim. Because he had 900 iron chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried out uh, to the Lord for help. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at the time. You know, this is really interesting because we're blessed in this church to have people from many nations. And I had been speaking with Bosch the day before about when the Ottoman Turkish Empire was ruling over uh, the Serbian Empire. And one thing that is characteristic of military conquest throughout history is it doesn't really do you any good to destroy the, the people's land. They have no way to pay you taxes then. Most of the time, you subjugate them, and then you extract from them whatever you can get. And all of history is filled with that. So when you're reading about Deborah, you find so many amazing things. Her name means honeybee. She's married a man named Lapidoth. Like, why would anyone do that? Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. When, when you read about Jael, it gets even more interesting. If you should go so far as to read the Talmud about Jael, it's, it's downright uh, salacious. Oh, no. Uh, Jewish history even says Sisera came into the faith later, his descendants, rather. So, so many things there, but I found nothing about oppression of their food, elimination of their crops, anything like that that would make me think that the book of Ruth took place there. So I kept going, which is what we're going to do. Judges 6, 1 through 6. And again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites, because the power of the Midian was so oppressive. The Israelites prepared shelters for themselves 
and mountain cliffs, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crop, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and other eastern people invaded their country. Hold there. In verse 3, we find our first hint in the book of Judges that something is related to the oppressive force that is coming on Israel and their food source. Very first time I could find it. Uh, if there's some someone else finds one somewhere else, let me know. We'll consider it. I couldn't. It seems that in this passage, we're finding out that the Amalekites, Midianites, and other eastern peoples are motivated by something. When they go out to work the crops, that's the best time to kill them. And uh, this is when we can really show our dominance over them. They were aiming at something more than occupying them and taking taxes from them. Uh, you're going to hear that played out in these verses. Verse 4. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. There's an unfortunate issue here, and I'm going to take you through it in Hebrew and in the Greek Septuagint. Because they didn't spare a living thing, neither donkeys nor cattle. Oh, no. Your thoughts go to donkeys and cattle. The original text does not bear that out. It's just a translation issue. Uh, they didn't... We'll, we'll get to it. Um, how bad do things have to be that they're attacking your crops and the Bible says they didn't spare anything that was living? Pretty bad. That's pretty bad. Okay, We're beginning to build the picture of what it was like in Israel that caused Elimelech, uh, and Naomi to leave with Malhon and Kilion and go to Moab. Uh, it might have been that they simply couldn't find a way to live where they were at. Take uh, verse 5. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land and ravaged it. Midian so impoverished the, the, the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Listen, they, they uh, attacked them while they were planting crops. They ruined their crops. They didn't spare a living thing. It says that they ravaged the land and so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord. Now, there are a couple interesting things in that passage. Was it bad for them or good for them that this happened? <laughs> well, it's terrible because there's huge human suffering. It's wonderful because in the affliction, they're turning to the Lord, right? I, I want to show you a couple, let's put these on the screen, a couple words here. The word ruined here, where it says they camped on the land and ruined the crops, this, this means they spoiled their crops, they destroyed their crops, they perverted, corrupted their crops, or maybe the best translation they wiped out their crops. When you think of a famine, you think of Ethiopia or the uh, uh, sub-Sahara Africa where uh, it's a big dust bowl and nobody can grow anything. There's another way to get a famine. Yeah. And the other way to get a famine is if somebody is destroying everything that you use to produce food and you can't get any food. Uh, so Strong's number 7843, Sahat. <laughs> Uh, is the verb there and ruined it um, I, I don't know I, may, maybe it conveys to you what it should but when I think of a ruined crop I think of a very damaged crop when I think of a crop that's been wiped out I think of it as not there yeah. 
uh, the import of the word is there is no crop there, which which leads to the context of the passage, which lets you know they're impoverished and nothing is living. Okay, let's take another word here where it says they did not spare a living thing. Can you all see that? Okay, Uh, this is uh, the literal Hebrew rendering of it. And uh, 3803, I'm sorry, 3808 is low. It just means no. Uh, the uh, uh, Yasaru, 7604, that, that means to remain. No remaining sustenance for Israel. Okay? Now, when you hear the word sustenance, 4241, uh, it's Mia. A feminine singular noun meaning preservation of life. See, we're talking about more than just wiping out cattle. They wiped out, there was nothing left to sustain life in Israel. That's incredible, isn't it? Uh, That caught my attention. Uh, I took it a step further. Sometimes when you're reading in one language and it's not yours, you need to look in several languages (coughs) and make sure you're not missing something. So I went ahead and... uh, took the polyglot uh, rendering of the LXX. Listen to this in the way that it puts it. And they camped by them, and they ruined the resources of the land (laughs) unto the coming unto Gaza. And there was not left behind support for life in Israel, even for the flock and calf and donkey. The idea here in the NIV, you, you say, oh, they, they ruined their crops and they killed all their animals. No. By ruining all of their crops, they destroyed the means by which they could support life, even for cattle and donkeys. Now we're starting to get the idea of a famine. If you had a donkey, it's not just that they killed the donkey. If your donkey lived, you didn't have a way to feed it. I had always had kind of a negative view about, man, what was Elimelech and Naomi doing, taking their boys and going to Moab? That's, that's, not, that's not on the right road, headed the wrong way. You're not even on the right road. I mean, good God, there's a dead sea. between. I'll show you all that later. Between you, you can't even get there from here. you got to start somewhere else. I mean, it's, there's no easy way to get to Moab. There's physical boundaries. It's difficult to even go there. Something extraordinary must have motivated them. Well, it's amazing what people would do when you cannot feed your children, yeah. right? That's true. Okay, let's. What we're trying to do is build a backdrop for you for the Book of Ruth because it's a beautiful romantic story, and girls, it will move your heart next week for sure. It moves mine, and look at me—I'm a barbarian. Uh, and yet, behind it, there is a tragic, awful story of death and destruction. And that's very often where God builds his romance right out of. If you sit here tonight and you feel like your life is coming apart at the seams, you've been dealt the most difficult hands that people can be dealt, I want you to understand the book of Ruth was written for you. And as a part of the Ketuvim, it's going to show you how to walk faithfully And as written by a prophet, it's going to show you what's in your future. See, the Lord knows exactly where we would be tonight. He's not caught off guard at all. 
And unlike Israel, who was unfaithful to God at this point, and we're going to see that, and, and an invader came in and wiped out everything for sustenance, or sustenance rather, we have something for sustenance. Yes. We have the Word of God. Yeah. And you're better off eating it than your next Big Mac. I mean, you, you really are. And tonight, if you'll chew on it, it might feed your soul in a way, well, that is like peace that transcends all the trouble around you, all understanding. And uh, I got to tell you, I got a feeling the Lord's got something good for us. And uh, I'm looking forward to getting to it. You ready? Okay. Uh, you can go ahead and turn that off. We'll give you some more in a minute. It seems uh, best to me, then, that the book of Ruth took place uh, in the events during Gideon's lifetime. Judges 6.1 indicated that Midian oppressed Israel for seven years. In Judges 8.28, which we didn't read, just says that Gideon reigned for 40 years, right? This means that Ruth, when uh, they say in the first chapter that it was about 10 years, right? That means that this time frame works out pretty well. Ruth began, the 10-year time frame began somewhere uh, in the middle of the Midianite oppression. And they began to get word after 10 years that crops were growing again, that good things were happening, and they went back. That fits with the historical narrative. But we don't stop there. It fits with the historical narrative in seven other ways. Are you ready for them? Okay. Who read last? Where did we stop with Daniel? Um, let's come, uh, let's, let's have some girls read, right? Christy. Uh, Christy, take Judges 21, 25. This is the first <coughs> idea of the book of Judges. Uh, characterizes things that are going on in the book of Ruth, and, I, and I'm going to show you that. Judges 21, 25. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Israel had no king in those days. The book of Judges, which is the backdrop for the book of Ruth, was characterized by its last verse, which is in those days, everyone did as they saw fit because Israel had no king. Elimelech, it means God is my king. And what happens to him in the book of Ruth? He dies. And what do the girls do? As they see fit. Right? Nobody's leading them. We're going to end up with the Moabitess as a part of Israel. Something specifically uh, the, the Torah says cannot happen to the 10th generation. Right? You, you might be legally disqualified, but you also might be gracefully included. You know, there are good things that are happening in this book. Now I'm going to tell you that the nature of grace is not to defy the law. It's beautiful. It's, it's not to wipe it away or abrogate it. Grace simply finds a way for you to do what the law said to do. Amen. And it is the tenth generation, but I'll teach that at another time. That's a good word. Especially if I can remember it. Uh, y'all might remind me next week. For sure by the fourth chapter, because we're going to do a genealogy, so I'll show you that. Okay. Just when did you start counting is the question. Okay, second one. So we're going to do seven. The second one. Who, who wanted to read it? Mandy. Mandy. Uh, you're going to go to Judges 6.10. But while she's turning there, our first one, our first reason that we know that Judges is a proper <laughs> backdrop for the book of Ruth is that the time period of the Judges 
Everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. So it makes sense Israelites are leaving their homes and going to Moab. It makes sense that Elimelech, the main patriarch, is dead and his name means God is my king. The second one is the famine had been severe enough to say there was not left behind support for life in Israel. So that context matches the book of Ruth where they had to leave. Now we're at the third one, which Mandy's going to read from Judges 6, 10. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The average Israelite during the time period of the book of Judges, but more specifically the life of Gideon, had fallen into idolatry. This is the angel of the Lord speaking to Gideon. And he's saying, you people are worshiping false gods. That is the backdrop for the book of Ruth. So, I don't like that Israelites went to go live among the Moabites. But if we're completely honest, the Israelites were living just like the Moabites where they were at. What happens if there's a Moabite out there that wants to live like a true Israelite? We're starting to look a little bit like the book of Romans. Okay, our fourth reason. Uh, who's going to read this one? Libby. Libby, take um, Judges 6, 11 through 12. To Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Think on this. Our fourth reason is that the strongest of the Israelites were hiding from their enemies, trying to gather enough food just to survive. That gives us the backdrop for the book of Ruth. If Gideon, who is the next deliverer, deliverer, is hiding his food in a wine press, and the angel calls him a mighty warrior, what was life like for the average Israelite, who was not a mighty warrior, who was just an old lady or an old man, right? That's beginning to build a picture for you? Okay, fifth one. (coughs) Uh, Sam, take uh, Judges 6.13. But sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The fifth reason that you can correlate Gideon's lifetime to the book of Ruth is Israel as a whole felt like God had abandoned them because of their sin. You hear Gideon verbalize that. The angel has said to Gideon, you guys worship the same gods as the Amorites. And he says, hey, where are all the miracles our fathers told us about? Our God has abandoned us. We're explaining the reasons that Elimelech, Mahlon, and Kilion may have left Israel. It's the land that God promised them, but their forefathers and they had not been faithful. And God was punishing them. So they went anywhere they could to survive, figuring... If judgment's falling, I might as well eat, right? Okay, number six. This comes from Ruth one thirteen. Brandy? Ruth one thirteen. I want you to hear that Gideon and Naomi 
are saying essentially the same thing. Ruth 113? Yes, ma'am. Would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it would be more bitter for me <coughs> than for you, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Who does Naomi say hand is against her? That's the same thing that Gideon has said. The Lord's abandoned us. The Lord has given us into the hands of the enemy. This gives you an idea that the state of Israel at the time was, we did wrong, and now God's given up on us. So they went to go find food anywhere. Like, like children, they were abandoned in a home, or thought they were. That's interesting, isn't it? That fits the time period of the judges, where everybody is doing what they see fit in their own eyes. The seventh one, the decision to move which is the most perplexing part to me of the book of Ruth, that we go from Joshua, where they just get the land, to Ruth, where they're leaving the land. The decision to move was in response to God's judgment. And it's likely that the deaths of the males felt like it was also in response to God's judgment. You know how when things are not going right, you expect the next thing to not go right? We have an expression for this in English. We say it's par for the course, right? It's like, well, of course, right? They were going from bad to worse to worse, so much that you get the impression Naomi just wants to die, right? And what an interesting place to start a book of redemptive romance. But desperation is the great, great beginning of of all real moves of God. That's good. I mean... The Lord knows how to get us into a place where we will love and appreciate what He does. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And the very worst thing for us is when we're not as reliant on the Lord. So, I'm never praising God for evil. And when injury happens to you, that's evil. We're not saying that there's a divine meaning in every evil. That's a big mistake. My family's had some this year that, let me tell you, there's no meaning in it. There's just how you react to it. Okay, The devil wants to kill you, but that does not mean that God cannot take those very same circumstances and weave the most beautiful, romantic, redemptive tale you've ever heard. Because it does. That is not giving meaning to the injury, it's giving meaning to the recovery. Okay, That doesn't mean that God delighted in you getting smacked in the face. What it means is he delights in picking you up because you got smacked in the face. Those are really different things. We live in a time period where our theology doesn't properly address this. We we talk about God's sovereignty to the extent that we forget that there's an actual war going on and not everything that happens is his will. Y'all are very quiet. That's not a thought that you're comfortable with, is it? It's a good one, though. Not everything that happens is his will. Okay. I can show you prophecy after prophecy that does not come to pass in the Bible because people were disobedient. I, I, can, I can show you instances where God declares a thing that does not happen in the time frame he says it will happen because of evil. How about the prayer in Daniel? I don't want to go there now. Let's, let's just kick this around for a second, though. From the moment Daniel prayed, he was heard. But it took the angel how long to get there? And why? Because God was slow? No, No, because there was resistance. And they had to be fought through. And the angel would not have won if Michael didn't come and help him. Okay? So we forget that there's a struggle. And sometimes there's a mixture 
of God's judgment and struggle with an enemy. We see that God takes Babylon and uses them to judge his people. But Babylon, seeking the opportunity for evil injury, goes further than God was comfortable with, and he corrects Babylon. Okay? So, what we're saying here is as dark as things are about to get in this chapter, they don't end that way. That last verse is a very, very important verse. There is a day when the barley is going to break the ground again. Amen. Amen. We'll come back to that. Tonight we're going to discuss a clinging resolve. It's going to be exemplified in Ruth's behavior, and it begins the redemptive story of God's romantic interaction with Israel, what I'm calling his romantic redemption story. Chapter 1, you can call clinging resolve. Chapter 2, gleaning response. Chapter 3, threshing request. Chapter 4, redeeming reward. Those are going to be our weeks and our lesson titles. Clinging resolve, gleaning response, threshing request, redeeming reward. Let's pick up in Ruth 1-1. Somebody read it. Just read 1-1 through 1-2. Whoever's there. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. This, uh, this phrase has caught a lot of people. It's like misunderstanding Nazarite versus someone from Nazareth. <coughs> Those are different things. And Ephrathite is not the same thing as an Ephraimite. What is an Ephraimite? Somebody from the tribes of Ephraim. We are not talking about tribes of Ephraim here. We're in a totally different area. I'll show you that on a map. An Ephrathite is simply someone from Ephrath. And I'm going to show you that. Uh, Go to Genesis 35. Who's going to read this one for us? Justin. We're going to be in Genesis 35. In your notes, write down 16 through 20. Were you all clear before we start on this? What I mean, you knew what an Ephrathite was, right? Okay, I just want to make sure I'm not wasting your time. Genesis 35, we're going to start in 16 and go through 20. Then they moved on from Bethlehem, from Bethel. While there was still some distance... From Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and had a great difficulty. And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, Don't be afraid, for you have another son. As she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named her son Ben Onai. But his father named him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Where is Ephrath? Bethlehem and Ephrath are the same thing. Uh, Verse 20. Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day, that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. 
Okay. I find some encouragement in the designation Ephrathite. It's the place that Rachel, who was the beloved of her husband, wanted to name her son Ben-Onai. Do you see Ben-Onai? Son of my sorrow. How often do our situations look like nothing but sorrow? Another way to translate it is son of my trouble, which might have uh, been more appropriate uh, to the setting. But remember, the child's father had a different name for him. Benjamin. And get rid of this Merry Christmas. <laughs> Benjamin, a proper noun designating Benjamin, but it means the son of my right hand. Think on that. This is the true background of this time in this story. Gideon thought the Lord abandoned them, but he was in fact rescuing them. Rachel thought that the child marked her sadness and death, but he was in fact a lasting testimony that the son of the right hand was coming. And the engrafting, not engrafting, the second uh, real revival in Israel's history is what Benjamin represents, the, the second harvest, the latter harvest of the Jews. Likewise, Naomi and her family believe this is their undoing when in fact it is their <coughs> establishing. There is a theme not only in the book of Ruth, but with every rabbit trail that you can take out of the book of Ruth, that when things begin to look their darkest, when it looks like there's absolutely no hope, is precisely the moment that God shows up on the scene and does something that you never could have dreamed or expected. When I tell you that the events of Ruth reverberate through history, you're sitting in this room because of the book of Ruth. The very... I don't want to give away the weeks to come. The geography of the book of Ruth couldn't be any more pertinent to the cross of Jesus Christ. It it is incredible. We're going to find out that there is no wasted detail in this book. Uh, Let me give you a couple passages for us to contemplate this kind of truth. Justin Treister, take Acts 5, 9 through 16. Judah Benjamin... Take uh, Romans 5, 18 through 19. Gabriel, take uh, Revelation 12, 9 through 10. This is concerning the true background of the book of Ruth, the book of Judges, uh, Rachel's birth story. They all look tragic until you see what God is doing in the midst of these difficulties. Acts 5, 9 through 15. Through 16. 16. Peter said to her, How could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment she fell down at his feet and died. (coughs) Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church, and all who heard about these events. The Listen, apostles... Does that sound like anything good is about to happen? No. no. Man, it is heartbreaking when there's defections. Yeah. Heartbreaking when there's grotesque sin. Heartbreaking when there's injury from evil things. It, it is heartbreaking. <coughs> Look at how this finishes them. Verse 12. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. 
No one else dared to join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds <laughs> gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. This is the bush that's on fire but doesn't burn up. The church suffers injury and the loss of two saints that sinned and excluded themselves. But where sin abounded, you know what abounded even more? The grace of God, the miraculous power of God. So we got punched in the face, maybe many times. Do you know what will abound in that? The healing, restoring power of our King. He will not leave His people subject to famine, Midianites or Ben-Onai. He will take it, and with the son of his right hand, he will prevail. He loves the underdog. All we're doing is building our testimony. What you're seeing happen in the book of Ruth is a Moabitess from nowhere (laughs) that is of no account and should never have been included gets in the lineage of Jesus Christ. What you find out is that a woman who thinks that her life is over, bitter, done, a dried up old prune, actually... (laughs) is credited with bringing forth King David. I mean, you can't get any better than this. A man whose life was pretty well set, he thought he didn't need anything else, finds he can't live without something that he has to have. You know, there is an extraordinary message in this for us if we will start to hear it. On top of Ananias and Sapphira's problems, you know what came? Revival at every turn. Hallelujah. You know what we're being prepared for? Revival. Revival at every turn. Who had Romans 5.18? I did. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. How many times in life have you thought, if one more thing happens, I just can't. I just can't. Of course, you're still here. Okay. Secondly, what you don't know is that one more thing that you think I just can't, God's got one more thing that says you can't. See, one trespass killed all mankind, but one act of righteousness saves all who are willing. See, we are going through the book of Ruth to find ourselves gleaning in the right fields, attached to the right people, yearning for the right partner, <coughs> because God is able to rescue you from your current situation, whatever it is. Amen. No matter what forces of hell have been unleashed against you, if you're in the wrong land with the wrong people, married to somebody who has died, God can bring it back. Wow. He always does. He is a resurrecting God. Amen. Okay. How about Revelation 12? The great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Stop there. That sounds like a story that sucks. (laughs) It does. I mean, let that settle in for a minute. If you don't know what is coming next, nobody says, Yay! The devil was thrown out of your house and into mine. Good. (laughs) Or if you read after this little insertion here, uh... And, and, and you see that he knows his time short and he's angry. You know, I'm like, great, great. This is, you took a rabid dog, threw him out of your yard and put him in mine to eat my kids. We're so happy. 
But read the next verse. Then I heard a Lord. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, "Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God." Stop there. We're beginning to see a truth repeated over and over and over. When do you see the salvation of our God? When the enemy has shown up in his man. When do you see great deliverance? When there's great distress. When do you find out that there's food in Bethlehem? You find it out when you have exhausted all other options. A great Savior <coughs> comes to save you from great problems. Yes. You know what? I never get stopped. Uh, I never get tired of being uh, my wife's pursuer. When she looks at me, if she sees me with respect, that feeling never gets old. If she thinks out of all of the men, I'm the one that she wants, that never gets tiring. I want to be the king of this home every day of my life. Do you really think Jesus gets tired of saving you? Do you really think that he, because he married you, he no longer wants to rescue you? I mean, think through that for a minute. He lives for it. He literally lives to intercede on your behalf. He put his spirit in you so that you could overcome. And when you don't, the answer is not to kill you and get away from you. It is to fill you fuller of him. Oh, saints. He's not abandoning us. He's not giving up on us. He didn't give up on them. There is a part of our heart that says they went to Moab, screw them. Let's write about somebody else. God's not like that. The star appears in the east because those are the people that are the furthest from him. He is always calling. Listen, I'm, I'm going to stop with this warfare thing, but I need to say it. I, I don't think you understand the extent to which we are in an actual struggle. When we get struck in the face, we act like God's doing it. It's not always God. You need to understand that. I, I can give you one, one specific verse that would just help you. The Lord does not desire that any perish. Is that scripture or not? Yes. Yes. The Lord wants all men to be saved. He didn't get everything he wants. Your understanding of omnipotence needs to be wrestled with here a little bit. He knows everything he wants to know. He can do anything that he wants to do. There's, he's the most powerful thing in all of the universe. And not every human being gets saved. But he wants them to be saved. So when we are obedient to him, we can trust that we will arrive at the goals that he has set. He calls the end from the beginning. The middle is a bit of a struggle. Okay? If you think that makes me an open theist or or something, it doesn't matter what you think. You have to wrestle with the truth of the scripture. And when you carry out your doctrine practically, it needs to practically work. And the idea that every detail in your life was planned by God and no other, and that nothing happens to you outside His will is wrong. The next time you sin, you prove that. You prove that He never willed for you to sin, ever. Okay, That would make Him guilty. The the end of that theology is wrong. We are in a life and death struggle, and sometimes terrible things happen to good people. And you have to stand up and fight for the will of God, and He will fight for you, and our victory is assured, but that doesn't mean there's not a battle along the way. i got to tell you, whether Elimelech made this decision and it was a good one or not, I think we can all have a very strong opinion about who didn't have a choice whether she followed him. Naomi had to follow him, right? 
How old were Mahlon and Kilia? We have no idea. Sometimes you're just in a crappy situation, but God can change it. The book of Ruth gives us all encouragement right where we're at in our regular lives. You're in Moabite territory. There's a famine and you don't know where to go. That doesn't mean that God doesn't have a plan to rescue you. You just need to hear him. You need to listen. I want to put something that is in my Bible that I thought was fitting on the screen. This is great. Man, that's hard to see, isn't it? Look, we'll just move it together. Okay. The cords of death. This is Psalm 116, verse 3. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came upon me. I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. Does that sound like he's having the time of his life? No. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Oh, Lord, save me. When do you cry out for a Savior? When you're entangled by terrible things, when you're in distress. Listen to the response. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the simple-hearted. When I was in great need, somebody say great need. Great need. He saved me. Amen. The greater your need, the greater the salvation. Ruth is a story about people in great need that experience a great salvation. Oh, Ruth is, is the best. In my Bible, there is written a quote from a 13th century rabbi named Nachmanides. Precisely at the time. When one king arises to pillage our possessions and destroy us, another shall arise to protect and save us. This is an important lesson for our future generations. Maybe never were there true words said, because from the 13th century until now, people are still arising trying to kill the Jewish people, but they're still here. And there's still a plan, and that plan is encoded into the book of Ruth. Wow. Okay, we better go back to Ruth somewhere, huh? I'm going to give you an idea of the region that they're traveling from the beginning of the story and at the end of the chapter. I'm sorry, we're going back up here. The end of the chapter, they go back. You know, you read a verse and it says they left the region of Moab and they went to Bethlehem and you're like, oh, okay, I'm glad they got to do that. Um, This journey is 75 miles at least. And none of it is straight or on a level path. It meant they would have had to have descend from the Moabite highlands to the Jordan Valley, which is about a 4,500 foot descent, followed by ascending to Bethlehem, which is 3,750 feet. And they would have had to walk through desert territory and the wilderness of Judah. You can start to see this. I even drew it. Bethlehem is the top left where it circled and Moab is the bottom right. Can everybody see that? Yes. These are the tribal allotments. What's between them? The Dead 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 Sea. Sea. Listen, those of us that were just there, I want to tell you, when you drive your car down the side of the lake here, there's some, it looks like the surface of the moon. (laughs) If you were going to shoot a science fiction film, this is where it would be. This is not an easy track. It was hard for them to get into the situation they needed to be saved from, and it would be a hard road back. But when they were walking away from God, I assure you it was harder than when they were walking towards Him. Okay, Because one ends up in a right place. 
Also, this shows you how far away from Ephraim. Where, uh, let me slide it down. Ephrath is Bethlehem, not Ephraim. Okay. Very, very far away. Okay, let's go to Ruth 1, 3 through 5. Somebody read it. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. That's an incredible thing. Things are going from bad to worse. Um, You probably already know this. Uh, Some of you may not. Uh, How do you say it? Let me find it again. Orpah. Uh, Oprah Winfrey's mom couldn't spell Orpah. That's how she got the name Oprah. Uh, She couldn't figure it out. And um, so she's misnamed. Okay. If you were going to name your child something, <laughs> aside from not being able to spell it, R E P, I don't know how to spell it. <laughs> aside from not knowing how to spell it, this is not a character that that uh, is to be emulated yeah. in the Bible. I want to show you what their names mean. Okay, we're going to go back to the screen. I'm sorry, I keep turning that on and off. Elimelech. God is king. Naomi, my delight. Some translations simply say pleasant. By the way, the Hebrew characters are here. If y'all want this, uh, you can uh, take pictures or I'll give you the notes afterwards. You can do paleo on these. That's fun too. Mahlan. This means sickly. That had to have been a hard name to go through school with, right? Hey, this is my kid, Sickly. You'll love his brother, Killian, wasting away. Does that give you an idea? That's exactly right, Charlie. They're both sickly. You're beginning to get the impression that the parents were under duress when the children were born? What did... uh, what did Rachel want to name her kid? But the father changed his name, right? Well, these, these, they died, and nobody changes their name. But that's not where the story ends, okay? And it might be why they had no kids. Ruth, a female friend. Who's on the phone? It's just Ruth. <laughs> Baby Ruth, Bismarcky Ruth. Uh, Orpa means gazelle. Now, you'll be able to draw some inferences. The names I think are important. You can probably pick that up from Elimelech. Uh, but as we go forward, I think they'll become self-evident. So I don't want to teach on that a great deal. Like the woman at the well who was alone and exposed in her sin, how alone does Naomi feel when her husband dies and her two sons die? I mean, can you imagine? Parents are not supposed to outlive their children. There is uh, no real worse feeling that you can have. I want to show you something about that, though. Uh, Who wants to read? Ben, take John 4, 
22 through 26. Nolan, <laughs> Revelation 22, 10 through 12. <laughs> Frank, your confidence is funny. Uh, it's great. Uh, Romans 5, 6 through 7. Better than the alternative. So John 4. John 4, 22 through 26. Jesus declared, oh, no. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Woman's getting water at a well, probably at a time of day that nobody else is, because she's a little bit of a pariah in a society of people who are viewed as dogs. Mm. I mean, normally when you go live among the dogs, you're their king. <laughs> I don't want to finish what came to mind there. <laughs> there is no clear proclamation in all of the scripture to any one person than what you hear right here. He says, Yet a time is coming and has now come. So you don't know when your time is coming. You, you don't know when the moment that your situation is going to turn around. But the way that this finishes is her saying, I know when Messiah comes, he'll help us out. And, she, and he says, I am he. Very interesting way to say that. Carlos, you in the room? Yes, sir. I am he. This is a declaration in a very Jewish way, that he is more than just a man. Uh, no, hey, hey is, is Carlos here? I said, Carlos didn't say, I am he. He said, I'm here, right? That's because the sentence structure is as awkward as all get out because we're translating literally a Hebrew phrase. I am he is a way to say God's name. Okay, I don't want to teach that now. The point here, though, is that this woman has gone from the worst day of her life to the best day of her life in two sentences. She's an exposed uh, adulteress living with a man that's not her husband uh, who can't get water out of a well, being berated, she thinks, by a Jewish teacher who happens to be there, and her every question that she has or statement is wrong except she leaves there knowing exactly who Messiah is, and her whole village gets salvation. See, you don't know when the time has now come. You might know that you're not there yet, but you don't know when you'll be there. See, it, it is always hellish until the moment it's not hellish. But the moment it's not hellish makes it easy to forget the moments that it was. Yeah? I mean, come on. Anybody that has ever been through a terrible trial, if you just knew when it would end, it would be so much easier. But once it's over, then they're just stories. Okay? Guys, he's writing our redemptive story. And I promise it's going to be as romantic as somebody being saved from a castle with a dragon. He's rescuing us from the dominion of darkness. Okay? It will be beautiful. Let's take um, Revelation 22, 10 through 12. 
Then he told me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. The time is what? Near. near. Now, we can debate these things in schools of theology all day long. You can have a futurist view, a historist view. You can have a preterist view. And yet, the Bible still says exactly what it says here. The time is near. near. And you know what every school of thought is debating? How near? So we end up with terms like partial this, that, or the other, right? Are you a historist? Well, I'm a partial historist. Are you a futurist? I'm a partial. Are you a preterist? A partial. You know what we're arguing about? How much is here and how much is still there? Because we're all in a trial and you're not sure when your time has come. But when it comes, you'll know it. When that time comes, the Bible actually says every eye, not some, every eye will see it. Now, what I'm getting at for you in a very practical way is if you're Naomi, if you're living during the time period of Gideon, probably there's not a lot that looks like it's going well. Okay, Your husband's dead. Your sons are dead. You don't know what's going on back home, but it was bad enough there that it could not support life. Now you're a foreigner in a foreign land. Do you know who they worship in, uh, in, in Moab? Chemosh. Uh, the detestable God. That's how the Bible refers to him. People give their sons and daughters to him in the fire. So who's she going to turn to for help? It's never looked darker until it doesn't. Look at Ruth 1, verse 6. Uh, Ruth 1, <laughs> verses 6 and 7, somebody. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people. Where did she hear it? In Moab. Moab. See, she's still in the midst of her darkness. It's still in the midst of the difficulty. And she gets word. Back home, God has come to the aid of his people. Man, if you can hang in there one more day, there might be the good news you've been waiting on. Yeah. One more. If the sun actually comes up tomorrow, who knows what it's like will bring. See, if you can wait one more day, you don't know what the story's end is yet because it's still being written. But if you quit today, then you know how the story ends, don't you? See, that is an incredible truth about the book of Ruth. The devil is trying to wipe out this entire line of people, and he has succeeded in killing Elimelech, Mahlon, Kilion, he succeeds in getting Orpah to turn back. But there's two women, the most unlikely that God's entire salvation plan depends on. He doesn't show up and carry them. He doesn't send them a Rolls Royce. He, he, they don't even get an angelic visit. You know what they got? Word that there was food in Israel. See, I don't know what you're waiting on. I, I, I don't know. But I know when it comes, it will be enough. I, I do know that. We're going to have to make a decision that we're not the kind of people that quit. You're going to have to come to terms with a kind of clinging result that says, if I go down, I, I, I'm going to do it right here. I'm going to die right here. There was one missionary that we used to be close with. And he lost his teeth and he said, then I will gum the devil to death. <laughs> Nolan, take Psalm 112, verse 4. Grace, take Colossians 1, 13 through 14. Jacob, 
Take Acts 26, 17 through 18. Chris, take Matthew 16, oh, Matthew 4, 16 through 17. Psalm 112, verse 4. Even in darkness, light dawns for the upright, for the gracious and compassionate and righteous man. Okay, I don't want to be so simple, but think about it. Where does light dawn? In darkness. See, you wouldn't even notice a new light showed up if it was the brightness of day. It is the darkness of our circumstances that draws our attention. If this was not going on, she probably would have dismissed the report that there was food at home. She's already been here 10 years. Why didn't she go back on some other year? The Midianite oppression only lasted 7 years. Assuming that she didn't get there on the first year of their oppression. Right? Then... You, you understand what we're saying? She could have gone back at any time, but she didn't. Maybe, maybe God had come to the aid of his people and she couldn't hear it. I don't know. But I know on this day she did. Maybe tomorrow you have the good news you've been waiting on. I've noticed that the people of God have a way of being pessimistic sometimes. You, you get a bad report and you're sure. You know, It's like we're expecting the next bad thing to happen. And sometimes it does. We can take that and a whole lot more. But what we don't want to do is we don't want to cede ground to the enemy because we're expecting the worst, right? I have a splinter. Oh, well, we're probably going to have to remove my hand. It's, it's funny until it's not. Because we might have just encouraged an enemy. I bet I can get his hand. He's willing to let it go. You see, we're going to have to learn to stand up and fight. And there's no better time to do that when you feel like you've lost a battle. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I don't like to be on the losing end. Wow. Uh, I, I, I don't like it at all. Okay, who had the next one? Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, mm-hmm. in whom we have redemption for the forgiveness of sins. Rescued from the dominion of darkness, transferred into the kingdom of light. Oh, man. Doesn't that sound beautiful? Yes. Except you're in the process of your transfer. Yeah. Right? Sometimes you can't tell what's darkness and what's light. But if you keep going, it gets clearer and clearer and clearer. Who had the next one? Acts 26, 17 and 18. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. How dark is that darkness until something shows up that turns you? Come on, man. Not only do we need to hang in there another day, you might need to start getting your head on a 365-degree swivel looking for something that is good. I found out if you're looking for a reason to be upset, there is a plethora. (laughs) If you are looking for a reason to be happy, there is not a plethora, but there will be a ray of light somewhere. It is a choice. It is a choice before us. That's why when things are going wrong, it seems like they just go from bad to worse. It's because of the way we're looking at it. right? In the name of Jesus, He will not leave us in that situation. He is speaking hope to lives in this room so that you have something to trust in. When there is no bread in Bethlehem, they still have the Word of God. 
I'll take the word of God in an empty belly over a full belly without the word of God. Oh, Any day. Okay, who had uh, Matthew 4? Matthew 4, 16 through 17. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. I love this about Naomi. I love this about Ruth. They only have a tiny report that God's come to the aid of his people. We don't know how they got it. Could have been a lying Moabite that said it. You know, I mean, we have no idea how they got it. They could have heard from someone who heard from someone who heard from someone. It could have been a chain email. I mean, I got no idea how it came. But the moment they thought they saw light, they took off after it. Amen. See, there's some there's a message there for you, Christian. You know, the moment you think you see light, you better run run for it. You you better go after it. You better act in faith. It would be better to fail trying than to be a miserable failure of not having even tried. We're talking about the separation of the sheep and goats here. See, the goats did not try and fail. They failed to even try. See, when you get light, even a glimmer of it, you got to go live in it. You've got to go sunbathe in it. You've you got to bask in the radiance of His glory. You have to start to learn to reflect it. Whatever revelation you're getting, you have to live in and cling to. And if you find something that's good, and you continue back to what is mediocre, what is dying, then how dark does your darkness get? The world is full of people who are trapped in darkness, and people who are totally sold out for, for the light, and then this whole group of lucres somewhere in the middle that know what is better, but do not have the backbone to choose it. Don't find yourself there. These two Hebrew women, one Hebrew, one Moabite woman, you know, didn't matter what stock they were from, didn't matter whose husband they had or didn't have, they had the courage to go after it. So they end up in a hold of fame situation. You know, your life will be based on the same choice. You can choose to live in the agony and misery of every bad thing that's happening around you, or you can run after light. I'm running after light. At the worst time in life, it's often the moment that an entirely new light is needed and then seen. It's never seen when it's not needed. You have to need it to see it. Naomi and these two girls are hopeless, but the ray of light is seen. It will require them to cling to what has been revealed. It will require them to have the resolve to finish what they've started. Maybe the whole reason that they've endured the trials of the last decade was to develop the kind of character that could be saved. I want to show you a word from Sunday that we're about to see everywhere that encompasses this. Sunday we camped on this a little bit. Kupamone refers to that quality of character which does not allow one to surrender to circumstances or to succumb under trial. I would say that Naomi had Hupamone, wouldn't you? Yes. Husband's dead, I'm going to keep going. First son's dead, I'm going to keep going. Second son's dead, I'm going to keep going. Hey, you two girls, you might not want to follow me because I'm going and I don't know if you're that committed. 
One of them turns back. She looks at the other one and says, do you want to leave too? It sounds like John 6. Yeah. Okay? Because Naomi's got something. She may have fallen far from where she was, but she was once in a land chosen by God, living in the promise of God, and now she's going back. Nothing's going to stop her. She is going back. And the question is, who goes with her? Where are you headed? Let's do a couple passages together. So Peyton, take Luke 8.15. Nolan, take Luke 21.19. Lindsay, take Romans 2, verse 7. Ray, take Romans 5. 3 through 5. Brandon, Romans 8, 25. Justin Treister, <coughs> Romans 15, 5. Abimbola, Colossians 1, 11 through 13. <coughs> Justin Linton, James 1, 2 through 5. Fast as you can get to it. Go. Luke eight fifteen. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. Persevering is hupomone. It's not enough to see the light and say, hey man, it's great. The light's right. You know what you people should do? You should probably go live in the light. It's not enough to salute it from a distance, to flirt with it occasionally, <coughs> to date it on the weekends. You hear the word, retain it, and persevere in it. Okay? That's how you change a crappy situation into something that's divine. You consistently follow after the Lord. No matter what comes your way, you don't stop. And you sure don't sit in decisions that you know were wrong. Who had the next one? Luke 21, 19. By standing firm, you will gain life. By hupomone, you will gain life. By a character that will not succumb, that will not quit, that does not give in, you will gain life. What's it going to take to gain life? The kind of tenacity of Naomi, the kind of courage of Ruth. It takes that. You have to have it. And if you don't have it, God will give it to you. Amen. Romans 2. To those who by persistence <coughs> seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. Hupomone in doing what is good. A character that will not quit. You do what is good. When it's put before you, you get it done. Romans 5 3. Not only so, but we also rejoice <coughs> in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom He has given us. Your enemy thinks less of you than God thinks of you. Your enemy believes that suffering will produce in you a character that quits, a character that gives up, a character that is crushed beyond rising. But God believes that suffering in you produces perseverance. It produces hupomone, a character that will not quit. God believes that the more you are attacked, the more you will cling to Him and win. That's what He believes about you. That's what you're called to. That is the heavenly struggle. And these two women do what a nation can't do. They go bring forth a Messiah. Because when something was revealed, they clung to it. 
Romans 8.25. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. You wait for it with a character that won't quit. Listen, I know many of you are yearning for something that you don't have yet. I know that. You are (coughs) fighting to maintain a belief in a promise that was given to you and you haven't seen fulfilled yet. But that's what hupomone is. And that is the only way to make it to the end. If you quit, you'll get exactly what you think you'll get. Not a damned thing. But if you keep going, you'll see salvation. See, that's what's at stake here. We can become a damned thing because we simply don't have the courage to continue. Or we can get glory, honor, and immortality because we've decided God's deposited in us what it takes to win and go after it. Romans 15.5 May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity amongst yourselves as you follow Christ May Jesus. the God who gives hupomone. See, the thing is, is we know where the source is. Bethlehem's got no bread, but the Word of God's got hupomone to spare. See, it will pour it into your soul in the darkest of moments. I'd have quit a long time ago if I didn't own a Bible. I mean, I would, and, and, and my Bible's just as big as yours, you know. There is promise in there that will keep you going if you keep engaging it. Amen. But what the devil tricks people into doing is believing that God's somehow against them, and so they run from the promises of God and go live among Moabites. He'll start killing off things in your life until you turn around. Amen. I don't want that for anyone. I don't want it for me. <laughs> and if it's not him... There's an enemy who is happy to snipe you at every turn. Yeah. And he doesn't even need a reason. Colossians 1. Colossians 1, through 13. Being strengthened with all power according to the glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Being strengthened with how much power? All. According to whose might? His glorious might. So that you have great great endurance and hupomone. See, we will have what it takes because His divine nature gives us everything we need for life and godliness. I want to flash something on the screen and then just keep moving. These are seven times during the greatest trial on the entire world history or landscape that Hupomone occurs. Wow. Revelation 1.9, Revelation 2.2, Revelation 2.3, Revelation 2.19, Revelation 3.10, Revelation 13.10, Revelation 14.12. Exactly seven times in the book of Revelation, a perfect number of times, you were told that you must have the character that will not succumb to evil. That's being said during the greatest famine that the world's ever known, spiritually and otherwise. What do you think the message is? We have to rise to at least the level of a Moabite girl. James 1, 2 through 5. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work 
so that you may be mature and complete. The Not more you're tested, the more Hupamone starts to rise, and Hupamone does something. <laughs> it has work to do in you. It matures you. It completes you. You end up not lacking anything. Can I tell you, you don't know where you lack until you're tested in a way you didn't want to be tested? Yeah. Yeah. I found more ways that I lacked this year, but the good news is Hupamone did not let me quit. Amen. And so next year I won't lack in the same ways that I did this year. Okay, saints, let's get back to Ruth. What was the last book we all studied together? What was the last chapter that we all studied together in Joshua? Naomi's about to put Joshua on him. It's really very interesting. This is Ruth 1, 8 through 15. Will somebody read it for me? Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you. You were not able to serve the Lord. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds exactly like Joshua. I'm not going to break it down for you tonight because it's 9 o'clock and there's other good things. I'll simply show them to you. Both passages contain exactly four encouragements to go back. you, You can't do it. You can't do it. In denial number three, in both passages, the speaker actually starts to accept what they're saying. In the fourth one, it's just to commit them to their position. Okay? That's... In both passages, they're exactly parallel. I was going to do a little chart, but now I'm not. So keep going, Bim. Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness. May the Lord show kindness to you, as you have shown kindness to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud, and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. Let's stop there for just a second. In verse 8, she says, go back. In uh, verse 10, they said, no, we will go with you to your people. Did you hear the we is plural? Somebody's lying. (laughs) The same today. About a dollar for every person that stood in our church and said, we are going to do this, we are going to do that. You know, I just got to tell you, it's very difficult not to become a cynic. But every once in a while, some superstar that doesn't look like it. Somebody that you just, you thought they'd be like every other one, surprises you in such a way that you remember that there's diamonds amidst the scrabble. Uh, verse 11. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. Pause. Two- Pause just a second. Go back. Return home. Return home. That's three. Okay? Now, first time she says husbands, the next time in verse 12, she's going to restate that husbands, but she's also going to just go on and say her life is bitter. It's awful. Right? She's discouraging them in every way that, that she can. Verse 12. Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and they gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. We're going to pause just there for a second. I, I just feel something floating in the spirit that I don't have as much time to chase as I would like, and we're just going to trust it makes the impact on you it should. The plain pashat of this, where would their hope be? What would have encouraged them? A husband. 
Ladies, if you have a husband, he may be a no-down, good-for-nothing dog. When I sit with him and talk with him, I may tell him that. You may have a coward little boy masquerading as a husband. But if you have a husband, you have hope. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ can change him. Don't you give up that hope. The hope of womankind was that they would be married and participate in, in giving birth to the body of Christ. That, that's the hope of womankind. These women are discouraged because there is no chance for them to have a husband. If you're sitting here and you have no husband, and when I say these things, that's painful to you, you're, you're not sitting there despising your husband, wishing you had a different husband, which I think is a temptation going on in the room. You're sitting there going, I don't even have a husband, and there looks like there's no shot. You know who else thought that? These women. But one of them ends up in the lineage of Christ and the other gets those children credited to her, even though she had no husband. See, there is hope for everybody, but it revolves around one specific facet. Believing God can change your husband. Or another way to say it is give you the new husband that you've always wanted. Don't you give up on that. Don't, don't do it. You know, a covenant is a covenant. I feel like I need to say that. There, there is no way out of a covenant. There shouldn't be any desire to get out of a covenant. A covenant is precisely so that when one or both of you has lost your mind, it's not up to you. God put you in a covenant. Stand your ground and pray. You don't know when you'll see light. You don't know that. So if your husband sucks, pray that God change him. Pray that. If you don't have a husband and you're concerned about that, ask that God give you one. Both happen in this book. Husbands, if you're sitting in here, whatever the condition of your wife is, that is totally the result of your attention or negligence. <coughs> totally. Absolutely. They are your very first disciple. Please don't ever talk to us about ministry until you're proud of the ministry that you see having happened in your wife. And if you're not proud of it, then understand something. We're not proud of you. Okay? Because God's not. Work on your own home. When you do that, you know what it does? It builds the kingdom of God and tears down hell. Speaking in front of thousands of people doesn't do that. Praying for someone to get healed doesn't do that. More people that have gotten healed of life-threatening diseases in our church left than stay. It, 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 I mean, that's just how that works. You know where the real hope of the gospel is? That God can change the one who's standing the closest to you. Amen. These two girls are hearing the exact same message, but they have totally different reactions. You can finish, Ben. Verse 14. At this they wept again. And Ophra kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, look, said Naomi. Your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back to her. See, it's not just a decision about Naomi, it's a decision about God. That's the fourth time Naomi said, go back with her, the same way Joshua four times did. Naomi summarily rejects the first three pledges to follow, but accepts the fourth. This is a type of an altar call that we ought to learn to practice. There'd be far fewer spiritual preemies being sacrificed to demonic lions. Let's pick up in verse 10 and read verse 10 one more time. They said to her, No, but we will surely return with you and to your people. 
Notice in verse 10 it says, We will go back with you. But Orpha went home and Ruth stayed. The gazelle fled and the friend stayed. There is every way that you can think about their names in this passage becomes relevant. Oprah, <laughs> Orpah ran, Ruth remained. Orpah sprinted, Ruth stayed. Orpah fled, Ruth finished. Orpah cut out in selfishness and Ruth clung in sacrifice. In the end, they both saw the same circumstances, but their actions revealed totally different hearts. This is the separation of the righteous from the wicked, the sheep from the goats and the fakers from the faithful, right here. They both pledge, we will we'll go with you. Orpah sees that Naomi has nothing that I need. Ruth sees that Naomi has nothing and needs me. You hear the different heart? One is in it for what they can get from it, and the other is in it for what they can give to it. Both women see the exact same circumstance. Naomi's not going to spit out a child that is then going to grow up and marry me and give me a child. That's it for Orpah. No secondary gain. I'm gone. You don't have a thing I need. The very same thing moves the heart of Ruth, though. Naomi doesn't have anything. She needs me. <laughs> you can hear the heart of the gospel in that. That's why he calls those that he calls. Which do you think will make up the kingdom of God in the world to come? Orpah goes into obscurity while Ruth goes into immortality. <coughs> all were weeping. Orpah, Ruth, Naomi, all were weeping, but only one would end up celebrating. Ruth 1.14. This is about to get good. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to him. Ruth clung to her. This tells us something. One says goodbye, the other gets glued. Debak, Hebrews 16.92. To cling, cleave, keep close. Used in modern Hebrew in the sense of to stick to, to adhere to. Debak yields the noun form for glue. The first time Debak shows up in the scripture is in Genesis 2.24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and he shall get super glued to his wife. And they shall be one flesh. Mine doesn't like to cuddle late at night, it makes her hot. She doesn't have a choice. God glued us together. <laughs> Big spoon, little spoon makes no difference. They're supposed to be together. Man of God, woman of God. In 2 Samuel 23.10, we see a message where Eleazar, son of Dodai's hand, got glued to a sword. When your sword is glued to your hand, when you're glued to the word of God, God is glued to you. This means that you are where he tells you to be. You are doing what he tells you to do. You are fighting the battle that he says to fight. The man that is glued to the word of God does not lose. He's prosperous and successful everywhere he goes, even in the midst of famine. 
You can say that Naomi and Ruth were losing. I said, you just didn't watch the show long enough. Nobody would see how it finishes and call them a loser. Well, I may look like a loser today, but you just haven't watched long enough. You're just seeing my victory in the making. Come on, say that's how you're supposed to view your tribes. I know the number one thing that comes in your mind is why, how. This is not fair. Why did this occur? Why would God let this happen? I, I've had all of those questions. You're in a battle. Yeah. The enemy wants to kill you. You need to come right back to one central truth. God is faithful in all that He does. He doesn't do anything that is wrong. He only wants to help you. If something is happening to you that feels like it's destroying you, God is able to turn it into something that's good, but it doesn't mean that he was responsible for the injury. <laughs> Glue. Seven occurrences of debacle in Deuteronomy. There's not eight, there's not six, there's seven. Let's read these. Uh, I need to hand them out to read them, huh? Yeah. We'll start right back up. there. Glad your hand was up, Andrew. You take Deuteronomy 10, 20. JJ, you take Deuteronomy eleven twenty two. <coughs> Jennifer, take Deuteronomy 13, 4. Justin Treister, take Deuteronomy 13, 17. Judah, take Deuteronomy 28, 21. Peyton, take Deuteronomy 28, 60. Nick, take Deuteronomy 30, 20. Deuteronomy 10, 20. Fear the Lord your God and servants. Hold fast to Him and take your oaths in His name. Hold fast to Him is be super glued to Him. Be debauch. Cling to Him. I probably don't need to draw any analogies there. You're, you're getting it, aren't you? Yes. Listen, when two things are glued together, they can be separated, but neither one will be whole. Man, if people learned that about covenant, you can break your covenant. You can separate from people you're in covenant with, but you will not be whole when you do it. Glue together your phone book. Y'all don't have phone books. Nobody has a phone book. <laughs> Glue together two pages of your Bible. Even a small drop of glue on there, a tiny one. When you separate it, what happens? Pieces of the pages are now mixed forever. Neither one is whole. They have holes and bumps in places that they shouldn't. Got a whole lot of people walking around that way right now. I don't want to add to that number at all. Honor your covenant and God will honor you by changing people. Who are the next one? Deuteronomy 11.22 if you carefully observe all these commands I'm giving you to follow, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, and to hold fast to Him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you. You hold fast to Him. When you're glued to Him, there was no nation that could stand up to you. 13.4 It is the Lord your God you must follow, and Him you must revere. Keep His commands and obey Him. Serve Him and hold fast to Him. See, being glued to Him causes success. Now, it sounds like we're kind of making up that, that glue, like it's just a metaphor. It's not. The Hebrew word for glue is debak. 
I mean, you, you could as easily translate these glue to him as hold fast to him. Uh, and I suppose somewhere somebody would put Elmer's on their hand and, you know, go try to touch the divine. But the way that we're glued to him, do you know how the Septuagint translates hold fast? Follow. Uh, 1317. None of those condemned things shall be found in your hands, so that the Lord will turn from his fierce anger. He will show you mercy, have compassion on you, and increase your numbers, as he promised on oath to your fortunes. None of those condemned things shall be debacked. They shouldn't be glued to you. See, the thing is, is what you love most, it sticks to you. That's why sometimes in a big group of people, when we're praying, we can feel what you're into. We can feel it. It's stuck on you somehow. See, when somebody really loves the Lord, you can feel that. When somebody really loves porn, you can feel that. When somebody really loves their neighbor's wife, you can feel that. When they really love money, you can feel that. When they really love offense and they nurture it at every turn, you can feel that. It sticks to you. Condemned things stick to you just like the Word of God does. You need the word that is a sword to separate you from what shouldn't be there and replace it with Christ. Let's take the next one. Deuteronomy 28, 21. The Lord will plague you with diseases until he has destroyed you in the land you are entering to possess. There's no word for plague you. It doesn't work that way. It's plagues will glue to you. Is that crazy? Yeah. If you persist in not following the Lord then he's going to make sure something follows you. You'll be glued to those things. Okay, uh, 2860. He will bring upon you the diseases of Egypt that you dreaded, and they will cling to you. The idea is when you will not follow the Lord, and he's telling you which way to go, then the very things that you were scared of, those are the things that are going to be stuck to you at every turn. It's like that scene in the Chevy Chase movie where they're trying to kill a squirrel. And the squirrel's hiding in a tree. And Chevy Chase keeps turning around looking for the squirrel and it's on his back the whole time. <laughs> See, you cannot get away from the things that you hate, scared of, all of that, when you're not following the Lord. Do you remember what it was to be lost? The very things you promised you will not do, you yeah. did. Yeah, you know, the words you didn't want to say, you said. The people you didn't want to hurt, you hurt. I'll never be like my father and you're exactly like your father. You know, each of those things, you get things glued to you. Deuteronomy 30, 20. And that you may love the Lord your God, listen to His voice, and hold fast to Him. For the Lord is your life, and He will give you many years in the land He swore to give your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We have a choice as believers what will stick to us by choosing what we stick to. What defines you as a believer is what you stick to and what sticks to you. When you choose to hold fast, to be superglued to the Lord, evil will not stand in His presence. It will fall off of you. If you choose evil over the presence of the Lord, it will stick to you. And your flirtations with the kingdom, they won't be what defines you. What defines you will be the things that you loved the most. Ruth made a sevenfold choice. How many? This is not hard because it's written right there in the verse. Okay? For where you go, I will go. 
step number one. Where you go, I will go. Step number two. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Or where you live, I will live. I'm not just going to follow you around. I'm going to live where you live. Number three. Your people will be my people. It's at this point that I want to remind you, Ruth, is loved by the Jewish people. Does that surprise you? Yes. Why is a Moabitess loved by the Jewish people? Because she wasn't born a Jew, she chose to be a Jew. The great confusion in Israel today is the history of the so-called church has made them believe that you want them to stop being Jews and become a Christian or else die. That's Satan's managed to convince them that based on the church's behavior. The anti-Semitic roots of the church have so reinforced this and the ignorance is so prevalent in our churches that when someone gets saved, we want them to prove that they're no longer Jewish. Jesus couldn't pass that test. Peter didn't pass that test. Oh No, Lord, never. They love Ruth because she said, your people will be my people. What would happen if we acted that way? Might love you too. Fourth one. And your God will be my God. Kind of have a land, man, and plan there, but we'll teach that another day. Fifth one. Where you die, I will die. It's, it's to the end. Yeah. It's not a half-hearted commitment. No prenup involved. <laughs> Verse 6, I think, speaks of the resurrection. And there I will be buried. Where you die, I will die is number 5, but 6 is, and there I will be buried. Listen, this is talking about commitment after death. I'm just not going to die in the same place you are. Don't take my bones anywhere else. I want to be raised from the dead in the place that you're raised from the dead. The seventh is, may the Lord deal with me ever so severely, if anything, but death separates me from you. She takes an oath. You know what's really special about that oath? She doesn't say Elohim. She doesn't say Adonai. She doesn't say some other name for God. She says Yahweh. It's the Tetratomagram. She invokes the name of Yahweh God in the seriousness of her pledge. That hints at, there's a remez there, that she understood more than she just loved Naomi. She's learned enough now to want to be in covenant with the covenant-keeping God. The bit about buried where you're buried, this speaks of a hope and a resurrection. She loved the people of God, wanted to be included in their number, 
Even though Naomi was not a great representative, she's kind of a bitter old hag at this point. She loved Naomi's God more than she loved Naomi. Loving Naomi's God made her love Naomi. Man, there's a lesson for that, Gentile. You don't have to love everything about me. You don't have to love everything about an Israelite. You don't have to love everything about your neighbor. You have to love their God enough to love them. Ruth 117, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May Yahweh deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. That's quite a statement for a Gentile to make. She was not just in love with Naomi and concerned for Naomi. She swore by Yahweh, not Chemosh. Orpah's already back home bowing to Chemosh. But Naomi's clinging to the only representative of Yahweh God she knows. Ruth 1.18 When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. I don't know how to play this out in my head. You know, it's like when uh, Abraham was buying a burial plot, you know. Yeah. I must pay for it. No, Lord, take it. I mean, you're a mighty prince among us. What, what is it? No, I need to pay for it. No, Lord, really, just just take it. No, I, I need to pay for it. Very well, here's a price that's ten times what it's worth. Yeah. Uh, or Joshua, you're not able to serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord. You're not able. I, I don't know what the tenor is here. But don't you think that Naomi kind of wanted the girls to follow her? Her life's going to be a lot harder if they didn't. But one took the first opportunity that she could to go back home. And the other could not be dissuaded from turning away from her. The book of Hebrews makes the startling accusation that if the people had wanted to return to Egypt, they'd be given an opportunity to return. If you don't want to follow the Lord, don't. Don't. I can't be dissuaded from following him at this point. I can't. I can't envision a life without... I don't want to envision a life without. I have more of my uh, sentient, conscious years (laughs) in the Lord than I ever had outside. I I wouldn't know what what it was. The very few times that I don't want to do something that he says to do, quickly remind me. Of, of what's waiting out there. Yeah. Uh, all I can tell you is that you either are cultivating the kind of hupomone that cannot be dissuaded from the Lord, or you're just a casualty that we're waiting to see happen. And the Bible says the love of most will grow cold. So you have to decide whether you're going to be in the most or in the few. And that choice is very much yours, just like Orpah and Ruth had the very same choice. Uh, Through the years, I haven't always predicted it well. If you bet against people, you're going to be right most of the time. But you both lose. I would rather bet for people and count on people and look for God to change them. That's the hope of the gospel. And every once in a while, you're going to be disappointed, but sometimes you're not. Right? We get to decide how we want to live. I don't know how Orpah finishes her life, but I bet it sucked bad. I know exactly how Ruth finished her life because it's still going. She's alive today. Amen. Ruth one nineteen. 
So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. Bethlehem means the house of bread. That's funny. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? After being gone at least 10 years, they've returned to the house of bread. What seemed necessary for survival in leaving the right land has proven to be more costly than anybody could have imagined. They are now back in the house of provision. No Proverbs 14, 12, Proverbs 16, 25. They speak to this. It can feel like you have no choice but to divert from God's plan. You can try to convince the people around you that given the same set of circumstances, it's what any reasonable person would do. What you need to know up front is the cost is always higher than you can estimate it to be. Always. Do you think that Elimelech left Israel to go to Moab so that he could die and his sons could die? There's a way that seems right to a man, and in the end it leads to destruction. Do not deviate from what God has said, not for anybody. Man, go back and listen to Jarhead Covenant about ten times. Make a jar of glass, then make one of concrete, then make one of titanium. (laughs) Can you give those two references again? Proverbs 14.12 and Proverbs 16.25. Now, I really had fun with this today. (coughs) Verse 20. Don't call me Naomi. Don't you call me sweetness. <laughs> Don't call me pleasant. She told them, call me Mara. Bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me pleasant, Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune on me. You know, I thought that was just whining. Don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. Sounds like an angry old woman. But it might be an acknowledgement that she deserved divine judgment. And she was accepting it. That's a necessary part of repentance. She comes back and everybody's like, Naomi, Naomi. What if she is simply acknowledging I got off the path, and that's why I'm returning with nothing and bitter. You need to call me what I am, a sinner. That's more noble, isn't it? You cannot repent by pretending it didn't happen. Okay, Repentance starts with an acknowledgement that whatever is going on in your life is the result of your choices. There's a little hint here. It's what got me on the... Uh, when I write L, you know what that is, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. She... <coughs> God... She in Hebrew is ironically the word who. The word who is ironically the word he. <laughs> Just to make sure that no English-speaking person can ever learn Hebrew. <laughs> Today is enough. You're going to read in Bible commentaries that uh, El Shaddai is the many-breasted God. That's not true. Um, That's not how the Jews define it. You're going to read that El Shaddai is the God of provision. That's closer to true, but not, not quite right. The Talmud defines the etymology of El Shaddai as God who is enough. 
and that makes all the sense in the world. The fact that he has been depicted uh, in Canaanite lands as a god of provision uh, is simply affirmation. It's, it's not the standard. Now, here's why I went through that, though. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara because Shaddai has made my life very bitter. She might be acknowledging that she left the God of all provision and went to a land to seek provision from the land. And that whole event has left her life sad and sour. And now she's returning to the God of provision in the house of provision, house of bread. And her life becomes sweet. What do you think the message is for you in that? When you walk away from the promises of God, bitterness waits for you. When you walk towards the presence of God, everything that you have ever needed will be found there, even if you can't see it. And how many people do you wish were here to hear that? They can't. But that's the problem. They're not here to hear it. Make sure that you're both here and hearing it. Mm. Verse 22. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in the house of bread as the barley harvest was beginning. It's Oktoberfest in Israel. (laughs) This is a strong hint that romantic redemption is on the way. Barley is the first of all the harvest. In fact, the first fruits, the sign of new life, is a sheaf of barley. It's a sign of the resurrection. There is a hint at the end of the first chapter that redemption is on the way. I learned many things about the agricultural calendar. It's 9.30, so I need to stop. Next week, I'll go through some of them with you. Um... Let me give you some things for homework. Okay? I need to share one with you. It's just fun. It'll give you an idea. In Israel, it is impossible to have grape juice in the spring. You know why? Because they don't harvest the grapes until late summer and early fall. You have no refrigeration. You set out a glass of, of Welch's from July until April and see what happens. There's only one way to get wine to even... Wine. To get your grapes to last from July until April. Here's homework. Look at the Hebrew calendar. It's a catechism. The Hebrew calendar itself teaches you about God's plan. It's a heptatic calendar. Heptatic meaning everything's based on seven. How many days are in the week? Seven. seven. How many feasts are in a year? Seven. seven. They even have weeks of years. Okay? Um, everything is based on seven and something happens at the end of the seven. Uh, second, <coughs> read about Shavuot, Pentecost. The book of Ruth is read every Pentecost. That's because there is a Shavuot similitude coming. (laughs) 
study the laws of gleaning. There's a rule for how you pick up barley or wheat. Steady, Leverite marriage. Those things take you half an hour. Because our subject headings next week start with the Catechism of the Hebrew Calendar, the Shavuot Similitude, Moabite Gleanings, and Leverite Leanings. <laughs> Let's put the screen up. I want to show you something. We are uh, now closed. I just want to leave you with a little hint. We take weeks, weekdays, and you get a Shabbat. We count off weeks of weeks, and you get a Shabbat. We count off weeks of months, and you get a religious year. You count off weeks of years, and you get a sabbatical year that the land rests. You count off Seven weeks of sabbatical years and you get a jubilee where all land reverts to his owners, all slaves go free, and all debts are forgiven. The time of the restitution of all things is near. Appointed times are pretty important. If you have 52 weeks in a year, then you have 52 Sabbaths. But then you need to add the special days for... Pasach, unleavened bread, and first fruits, yeah. and you get seven. Then you add Shavuot, the Feast <laughs> of Weeks, Sabbath, and you add one to the total. Then you take Yom Teruah, the Feast of Trumpets, and you get one. You take Yom Kippur for the Day of Atonement, and you get one. You take the seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles, Total those up and you're at 69, but you have to add one for the greatest day of the feast, which is called uh, the eighth day of assembly. And you have 70 Sabbaths in every year. The Heptatic calendar is a catechism. It will teach you a lesson. If you could count to seven, you could learn God's redemptive plan. Amen. Y'all stand on your feet. We'll pray. <coughs> Did you learn something this evening? Yes. yes.